With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to Remote Controlled, Variety's TV podcast. I'm Deborah Birnbaum, Executive Editor of TV. Every week we'll bring you conversations with some of the best and brightest in television, working behind and in front of the camera. On this week's episode, we're talking to Julie Plack, the executive producer of Vampire Diaries and the Originals. So stay tuned. I'm Deborah Birnbaum, executive editor of TV with Variety. And I'm Michael Schneider, editor-at-large at Variety. And I'm thrilled to welcome Julie Plack, executive producer of Vampire Diaries and the Originals. Thrilled to be here. Thanks for having me. Julie oh, Plack in the house. Mikey Northwestern. What? <laughs> yeah. We went to the same college. It's okay. I feel a little left out. It's all right. You know. Go it's Purple. That's all right. Go Big Red. <laughs> I know. It's a terrible name for a team. I went to Cornell. Oh. <laughs> I know. Terrible team name. <laughs> so, Julie, thank you for carving out time out of your very busy schedule to sit down with us. Hey, I'm um, practically on holiday. I've got a show that's ending. I've got another show with only 13 episodes. It's mid-season. I'm coasting. It's amazing. <laughs> You're a slacker. <laughs> I'm slacking hard. Only so, two shows on the air right now. I know. It's that's... like it's a holiday. That's not like you at all. <laughs> so, talk about the decision to end Vampire Diaries. How <sighs> hard a decision was that for you? It's still... <laughs> the other day, I was like, what did I do? Why did I do that? Um, It's still a very hard, very bittersweet decision that I did make and that I think about every day. Um, For me, it was, I I just always had to look at what value can I continue to add to this show? And if I were to stop adding value, do I believe that it could carry on and, and, and be good and be something I can be proud of from afar? And... I thought, well, let's see where the writing takes us. Let's see where the story takes us. Because I made a very concerted effort to step back into the room this year and, um, and you know, sort of more full-time than normal. And I started talking with the writers, and he- here's our stories, and here's what we want to do. And the themes that we started exploring were all themes of of redemption and, and good versus evil and sort of the biggest universal themes you can imagine. And everything just sort of pointed to, like, the end of this particular season is the end of the journey of these characters. And I thought, like, yeah, I could step away next year and the show could go on, but it wouldn't be good anymore. And not because there wouldn't be an excellent writer that could come in and make it good, but because... It, if we can't complete these characters' journeys full stop, we're doing a disservice to the legacy of the show. And it just felt right. And it felt like it was time. Um, it still freaks me out. And, and and Mark Pettowitz is like, you cannot say it's over and then change your mind. You understand. I did this once. It did not go over well. <laughs> I think it was like, was it Seventh Heaven? Or, I don't know. There was yeah. some like show he was involved with where they announced the last season and then they like rescinded it being the yeah, last it season. It was Seventh Heaven, yeah. yeah. And he's like, I will not rescind it being the last season, so you better damn well mean it. And I, I really thought about it and I said, it, it's just, it feels like it needs to be. 
Well, this is part of a, almost a trend now where we're seeing a lot of shows announce early on, uh, you know, at the end of their, say, fourth season, fifth season, that this is this is the end or we have an end date. Um, is there something freeing at the same time in, in knowing that you're working toward now a finale, that there's closure, that there's light at the end of the tunnel? There's something freeing about it, absolutely. There's something easy about it as well. And I think it's because you have like this finite list of things you want to accomplish for the characters. You know, there's the the wedding you always wanted to throw or the confession of love you always wanted to hear or the the death that you always wanted to do. And you you hold off on that as long as you can because you don't want to you don't want to jump the gun on that kind of storytelling. And so when you have an end date, you get to do all those things. And just speaking strictly from a writing point of view and a structural point of view, when you know the tent poles of where you're going, everything comes together so much more easily because you're not stalling and you're not going half measure. You're like saying, well, if these two people are going to die in a fiery plane crash in episode eight, then I know exactly what I need to do with them between episodes one and seven. And it makes just the whole process that much easier. Spoiler. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So not only are you back in the writer's room, so is Kevin Williamson. What does that mean for you? Well, Kevin was able to join us at the very beginning of the season for the first episode, and he will come back and join us at the end for the last episode, uh, which is a total emotional decision for him. He's busy. (laughs) He's got a brand new show to launch. And so I was really touched when he reached out at the top of the season and said, please let me be a part of this. I hate the idea of it ending without me being able to be there and experiencing it with everybody. And so it was fun writing the first one with him and it will be very dramatic writing the last one because we're gonna you know we're the way that I'm breaking the the season with the writers we have left a fork in the road for that last episode uh, and that it could go one of two ways and so I can't wait to bring Kevin back into the room and back into the process to sort of deliver that Sophie's choice to him well, obviously, the show already experienced a big change when, when Nina left. And talk about what that meant for the show. And in some ways, did that sort of start this this sort of time, this this clock that, you know, the show couldn't last forever without her, that she was such a part of the show, that uh, there there probably was an end game from that point on that, you know, you only had a couple years left after she left. There's a sense of, you know, th- there's a, a possibility that in that supernatural paradigm that the show could have gone on for 15 years. Mm-hmm. I mean, Damon and Stefan Salvatore are really wonderful, dynamic characters to write. Uh, and Elena Gilbert aside, they remain wonderful characters to write. Um, I think it just felt more like, how do you carry on the supernatural dynasty without... without how many vampire stories can you tell? You know, we've told them. We've told the werewolf story. We've told the ghost story. We, you know, we don't want to get into demons and creatures and, you know, zombies and, and mummies and, you know, and and things that I can't even remember, words that I don't even know how to say that, you know, other monster shows deal with. We never wanted to go there and we still don't want to go there. So it just felt like more that the engine, the supernatural engine was getting tired more so than the characters. And I think that... We could have, you know, we we still can and could carry on if we wanted to. I just love the idea of being able to bring it to a close with celebration. Talk about how you announced it, uh, obviously in front of fans at, at Comic-Con and, and uh, the, the immediate reaction you got from, from the fans. It was, I was terrified. I said to Paul Wesley, I'm like, I don't know when to say this. When we're, you know, when we're at our panel, do I say it before the Q&A, after the Q&A, at the start of the panel, the end of the panel? And he said, I think you should just say it right from the top. And I said, but what if they 
boo me. What if they start throwing things at me? And he goes, great, that means they care. Right. Uh, and so we settled with uh, announcing it right before the fan Q&A, which it was interesting because I was sort of saying, well, that's terrible. Like, you like make them cry and then you make them stand up and ask you questions. And it was actually Warner Brothers uh, publicity person, Chris McLaughlin, who was like, yeah, but imagine if we went through the Q&A and then told your fans and they had missed an opportunity to take that last chance to speak to you guys. Right. And so... Um, and he was right. And so we went and we recorded this video and we did this whole kind of confessional Q&A with all the actors on our sets and then had our editor put it together and had the fray give us one of their songs. You know, they were the last song in our pilot and we've used them so much over the years that it felt musically great to bring that home again. And that video makes me cry every single time I see it. I was just showing it to my friends the other day who hadn't seen it, and they started crying at the dinner table. It's There's something so special and poignant about it. I'm actually more proud of that video than of like a lot of things I've done on the show over the last seven years. <laughs> Talk about your relationship with your fans. You've been such an integral, they've been such an integral part of the show. You have such an open dialogue with them on social media. How important have they been to the show all along? Well, they've been crucial. You know, I think the model of the CW network is really, it's a, it's, it's built on fan platform more than anything else. And they'll say it very honestly that ratings don't really matter to them. And they're not saying that because their ratings are not very high. They're saying that because the success uh, or the longevity of a series has less to do with the number it's pulling and more to do with the, its kind of social footprint, I guess, you know, making up a term. Um, what it does for them on digital, the chatter, the pop culture aspect of it, the, you know, the star making uh, iconic leads, you know, for obviously for Warners, it's keeping the DC universe thriving. So there's a lot about the fan support just um, on a strictly business level that's really powerful for that network and for a show like this on a personal level it's been it's been so extraordinary because the show started with a bunch of people you know a couple dozen or a couple hundred or whatever people tweeting who had read the books and were just ready to really either love us or hate us depending on what we did with the source material and watching that community embrace the show and then embrace new fans of the show and engage in debate and rhetoric about the show and love it so deeply that they know it better than we know it has been really special and and they can get mean and they can get very aggressive and by they it's sort of I mean like a a pocket of they a small pocket but a loud and 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 an aggressive pocket um and and so it's been it's had its ups and downs being so actively involved in the fan community, especially on social media. But overall, having that relationship with the fans, getting to watch them love the show and love each other, and the friendships that they've built um, through the online community and the fan conventions and stuff like that, has been pretty amazing. And we've talked we've talked about this before, and for the most part, it's been amazing for you. But social media has been rough for you as well. And uh, you know, talk about that and, and how you've learned to sort of navigate that world. Uh, over the years, on, on Twitter especially, with some of the trolls out there. <laughs> there was this tweet back in season three that, you know, it was the season, I think, at the end, Elena had to kind of choose between Stefan and Damon, and I saw a tweet saying, Julie Pleck be, better be prepared to leave the country. <laughs> and I was thinking, oh my God, like, 
they want me to leave the country. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Who's coming after me? And, you know, on a very, very, very small scale, there have been some interactions on social media that have been downright scary mm-hmm. um, and un- unsettling. And then a percentage that are just incredibly insulting and rude and hurtful um, and bullying, frankly. And, and, and I used to get so worked up because, I mean, I still do on a, on a philosophical level, but on a personal level, I so worked up because I just felt so incredibly attacked and and hurt. Like it did, the idea that someone was sitting on the other end of their computer, going out of their way to say something hurtful to me, really worked me up. And then it 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 made me sort of angry at the state of the world. So thinking like. If they're saying this to me, like, what are they saying to each other? And what are these teenagers saying to each other? And and then, like, six, seven years have passed, and I'm looking at it, and this is our world today. And it, it in a way, Vampire Diaries kind of started at the beginning of the, the Twitter phenomenon. And watching the fan and, and just not even fan, social interaction on Twitter go from an excited Disneyland playground of 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 talk to a volatile, ugly, um, hate-filled platform for bullying uh, has been really, really scary. And now we're in the middle of it with this election. So it's just sort of, it, it, I feel like I rode a zeitgeist into like the shitstorm. Um, and you know, that all said, I love Twitter. I am a huge, huge, huge Twitter person. And I love it for all the reasons it's great. It's just been fascinating fascinating run have there been times over the years where you and the writers have have sort of looked at some fan response and actually course corrected or or maybe actually that's a great idea or they're on to us we got to switch this up (laughs) they there's been a lot of 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 fan advocacy for certain storylines and we had to sort of say early on like we cannot be swayed by the intensity of this voice because we don't know how big the voice is. So even if we were the kind of people who are like, hey, let's be pleasers across the board and let's do whatever the fans want, we have no idea the, the amount of the fan voice that they actually represent. Um, what's been fun is reading their wishes and finding little ways to, you know, what's the what's the positive version of troll, you know, uh-huh. um, unicorn troll, <laughs> the, them, you know, and say like when they wanted Anna and Anna to come back, and that this one girl was tweeting me seventy five times a day, please bring Anna back, please bring Anna back, and Kevin and I were like. Why not? And we brought Anna back because it launched the other side storyline and the ghost storyline that was the engine of season three, I believe. So that's been fun. And the Delena kiss in the rain. And they want Klaus and Caroline to have a conversation in the bathroom. I'm not so sure we're going to get that one. (laughs) But, um, you know, it's been fun to do things like that because that just feels like little Easter egg fan thank yous. On the positive side, too. I mean, you know, it says to you that there's maybe a response for a character that you didn't know was popular, or maybe it leads to a spinoff like Klaus and the Originals. So it can, you know, look, uh, you know, we've all had that experience with Twitter as well. Hopefully this table's okay. Um, <laughs> Julie's knocking over the table. You cannot um, see. But yes, so maybe, the, you know, it can lead to a positive side. So we, we saw the Originals come out of it. And, you know, so you, 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 t- you mentioned before that you're going into a 13 episode of the Originals. Talk about what's coming up about the Originals as well. The Originals is really fascinating this season because we have sort of let our horror flag fly in a ways that we haven't in the past. Um, 
a lot of the writers and Mike Narducci specifically are huge Stephen King fans and love the way that he can create an insidious horrific energy um, without defining a singular monster at the top and just creating a tone in a world filled with mystery and 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 uh, and fear that can be more terrifying than any monster itself and so we've attacked this season from that point of view, how can we create a culture of fear within this New Orleans environment um, and then slowly over the course of a long run really identify the monster at large? And it's been creepy and cool and uh, it's allowed a lot of the other characters to step up and have really great juicy stuff like Vincent, um, Yusuf Gatewood's character. He's such a tremendous actor and he's been underutilized in years past and this season he's right in the center of it all. And so it's been a lot of fun to tonally shift that show into a darker place while still having the, the core of the emotion attached to the family dynamic. But it's really become its its own show, and now as Vampire Diaries goes away, it sort of it, it truly is its own beast. It is absolutely its own beast. It is tonally completely different. It uh, deals in different themes and relationships. Romance, weirdly, is not a priority over on that show at all, whereas Vampire Diaries without romance I don't think would have ever been what it is. Uh, Horror is a priority. Insidious horror, you know, more than on Vampire Diaries where we're like, eh, there's nothing scary in this episode, whatever. You know, they're kissing. Um, <laughs> so it's been fun to watch it grow up and, and grow into its own. And and my hope now is just to keep it on the air, you know. I think that it has an opportunity to continue to thrive in, in its own identity. And then now that all the Vampire Diaries people are unemployed, then maybe there's opportunities to slide a few into that universe in the right organic way as well, which would be kind of exciting. Speaking of the end of the Vampire Diaries, uh, there's the obvious question that we can't uh, let you leave without asking, which is uh, Nina and possibility of her coming back and and what can you say at this point the only thing i can say is that we have about 900 hurdles to cross in terms of logistics and scheduling and her press tour and a lot of things that are happening unfortunately the triple x happens to be opening exactly when we're shooting that episode but we are all extremely committed to making it work and to getting her there um whether it's for one shot or one entire episode, those are the things that we have to work out along the way. But I, I would be heartbroken. I mean, truly heartbroken uh, as a fan of my own show, much less as the as the showrunner to end the show without without Elena Gilbert. So um, I've got everything crossed that it'll all work out. So you've got a plan in mind. You've got already ideas. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. I've got I've got every version of the idea, including the, you know, the version where she's not in it at all. But that's the one I sort of like keep locked away in the bowels of the closet, hoping to never dig up. And she's on board with it as well. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, she absolutely wants to be there to, you know, to see it through to the end. So now we just have to figure out how to make it work for how much time we can make it work. You'll make it work, Julie. Yes. I have faith in you. So do I. Perfect. Um, So we're also in the midst of development season, and I know you've got a few pilots in the works. How are those going? And can you what can you tell us about them? Oh, pilot season. My favorite (laughs) topic. I was just I had a meeting yesterday with um, with a producer and we were talking about pilot season. And I realized at a certain point that I'd been talking 
emphatically for like 17 minutes and I was on such a soapbox about about pilot season and how much I hated that he was just staring at me with like glazed eyes and I thought oh god I'm sorry I <laughs> haven't shut up um, everything's going well we're in that phase of you had to go through this phase where before you get to write a word of the script you have to outline every beat of the episode and then get that approved and so I've got both writers and both projects are putting their outlines together right now and uh, and this is the the annoying piece of the puzzle that you have to go through before you actually get to go put the words on the page but um, I'll tell you you know, Rise is the one that we're doing for the CW, and and it came up out of a mutual love for Red Dawn um, and the idea of just the American Revolution and and trying to tell a story of a new American Revolution. And four or five months ago, when we started talking about it. it definitely, you know, it felt very topical. Yeah. But like yesterday, I think there was somebody at a Trump rally who was like, "If Hillary wins, we need to start a revolution." And everyone was like, "Oh, hey, whoa, 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 be careful!" And I thought, "Oh my god, this is getting so real. It's almost too real." Yeah. So cut to it's either going to be an incredibly topical and fun take on that kind of thinking, or it's going to be one of those like, "Why don't we shove this for a year until right, right. <laughs> until people are less pissed off?" Or it's going to be a documentary. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So real quick, um, maybe not 17 minutes, but uh, I'd love to hear a little bit of your uh, pilot uh, season oh, screed. and, and God uh, bless what, you. Why, no. why, why you're not a fan? Well, you know, I mean, look, I'm not saying anything that anybody wouldn't say. And it's, you know, it certainly don't bite the hand that feeds you. And I understand that this is the process. And I do think it eventually will slowly change because I don't think anybody particularly likes it right. as the process. It's just, it's the idea that... Starting from the beginning, it's the idea that you got like six months uh, to write one script and then about six weeks to break an entire season and launch into uh, shooting and figure out everything that your series is supposed to be and the voice and all that. It's, it's, it's so creatively misskewed that you think, yeah, you can write it. Anybody can write a great script with lots of development support and all the time in the world, but try running a show and writing a show week after week after week. And you're just kind of setting people up for failure from the beginning. Um, certainly you're setting them up for struggle. Uh, and so that from a creative point of view, if I could shift the balance and say, okay, yeah, the pilot script is important, but more important before you start shooting your series is having an adequate amount of time to write your series and that's a uh, the scale is a little bit too heavy um favoring the pilot process and then the just ridiculousness of saying great now that you've written this amazing script you and your 52 peers that have also written amazing scripts are going to compete for exactly the same talent the exactly the same writing talent and crew and locations and all that uh, and you're going to do it in a span of like four weeks and on a, an extreme and immovable deadline so it doesn't matter if something goes wrong you're done you're screwed you can't fix it um, because we need this in six weeks and so go and that just becomes chaos. And so you're thinking, well, these are the shows that are going to be on the air for hopefully the next six years, eight years, or certainly the next six months. And you're, you're, you're in a Survivor-esque reality show, feeding frenzy, taking, oh, oh they're not available. Okay, who's next? Who, who you got? Who you got? Get them in here. Oh, shoot, we lost them. Okay, who's fifth on my list? Oh, who's sixth on my list? You know, and it just, <laughs> that's how it goes. It's madness. 
Well, this is why uh, so many of your peers have kind of uh, gone away from broadcast, why they're doing cable streaming now. You're, you're still playing in the broadcast game, though. Talk about why. Yeah, you know, I mean, it's so funny because my, my joke lately is like, I just want to swear and maybe let people get a little naked. And, mm-hmm. and, and then I think, no, it's not even that. It's I want to have no commercial breaks and no broadcast standards, you know, and, and just be able to write the way I want to write. But then I watch cable, and I'm like, but I, and I love, I mean, some of my favorite shows right now are on cable, but I am such a commercial mainstream storyteller in so many ways that I exist somewhere in the middle of, you know, wanting the freedoms that cable provides, but, you know, still having sort of a, you know, a, a heart for the best, you know, Shonda show, and, um, you know, I've been celebrating This Is Us on Twitter for the last few weeks because I just think it's such a wonderful show and it's been missing from the broadcast landscape and I'm so thrilled to see it on air and, like, I want to make that kind of show on broadcast and I'd be happy to, you know? Right, nothing wrong with the mainstream and also being a populist and, and exactly. recruiting large audiences. Like popcorn. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> broadcast can survive. We can make broadcast shows. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, I think that it's been fun to watch broadcast try to find its way in this more competitive cable environment creatively. I think that, strangely, with Designated Survivor and This Is Us, and I haven't seen Timeless yet, but I heard it's really entertaining, they're finding some really great kind of tentpole entertainment, um, which maybe they haven't been able to do as well in the last few years. So I'm sort of like watching them step up their game and kind of excited to see how that goes. It's been it's been kind of thrilling. You know, the whole, the whole business with so many shows here, you, you can so easily get lost in the shuffle. And so the idea that a show can hit because it's crowd-pleasing is still fun. So how do you stand out in, in peak TV? What's the t- what's the takeaway for you for the lessons from like the success of a show like This Is Us? Um, honestly, I, I mean, the easy response is just write something good that people like, you know? That's like, but that's like saying to a comedian, can you be a little funnier? You know, like there's no recipe for it. I think that This Is Us for whatever reason, just hit a moment where everybody just wanted to feel a little bit better. You know, um, I think if 10 more people tried to do the same thing, it might not hit that mm-hmm. same moment because there's only so much of that that, you know, an audience wants. Um, I think that I think that it's, it's difficult when there's 497 channels, and I can't even name them, um, the dreaded M word is still so important in marketing and money for marketing. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that it's so difficult to find an audience because the sea of options is so huge. You still do need to break through on a publicity and marketing level, and uh, um, that will be the thing that sort of separates the um, the big the big guns from the little guns in terms of just how deep their pockets are to get the word out. Well, it's interesting that uh, you know in a year where there's so much uh, IP and, and so much remakes. I mean, some of those are doing fine, but but some of the the new hits of the fall are original ideas like This Is Us mm-hmm. and Designated Survivor. Uh, so as, as a writer, uh, I assume that's kind of a good good news for you, right? Yeah, for sure. I had this like, I'll, you know, I'll do respect to superheroes. And, you know, and I just watched Supergirl the other night. And I was like, oh, this is really cute. I really like this show, you know. But like I woke up last May and saw, you know, a picture of the CW and every single person had a cape on. And I thought, oh, OK, that's where we are now. And hmm. 
I don't I don't know that I fit there anymore. Like I don't know if I fit in that sort of super superhero world because um, everybody else is doing it and everybody else is doing it so well. Where where do I fit into that? And I had a little bit of an existential crisis, thinking, Gosh, you know. Have I peaked? <laughs> Am I washed up? Am I no longer relevant? I don't think so. And then a show like, for example, I mean, I, I hate to keep harping on these two shows, but they're new, and so they're they're you know they're on the, the, the I just watched them last night. They're fresh in my brain. Designated Survivor, and this is us. Beautiful character-driven, emotional family stuff on one end, and on Designated Survivor, big idea, high energy, likable star. Jack Bauer back, you know, in Washington, D.C. And it's just like, and I'm like, I love that. I could do that, you know, so great. I, I'm not completely, you know, I haven't completely like, you know, put thrown my cards in because I do feel like there's still an opportunity to just be original and fun. You didn't mention the pilot you're working on with Greg Berlanti. What is it like working with Greg again? Oh, my God. I, I love Greg. Greg and I go so far back uh, and have had so many just wonderful creative collaborations dating back to, like, sitting on the floor of his apartment on Fuller uh, in Hollywood when we lived in the same building and coming up with ideas. Uh, what's great about it is now, I mean, he's a mogul. He's hardcore. He's got, I go into his office and there's, like, 17 employees. You know, right. I've got, like, an assistant. And so uh, it's it's so fun to like walk into this world that everybody reveres and thinks is so almost intimidating and just like go sit with Greg and be like hey what's up you know and just shoot the shit and and reminisce and then talk story which is the thing that he and I have always loved to do um, and his company Sarah Schechter who's running it for him is like so excited she came out of the film world where you know just getting a movie made is a Herculean effort in and of itself and she's like the kid in a candy store they're you know producing and, and constantly producing and constantly getting things on the air. Um, Jake Coburn is somebody that I developed with back when I was an executive when he was fresh out of Brown. Um, brand new, you know, Jenny from the block. <laughs> and and Greg then sort of, I say stole, um, we might say co-opted or maybe just Jake chose Greg over me. But bottom line is Greg ended up working with Jake and I never did after we developed together. So it's fun to bring us all back together. Um, speaking of the, you know, the big idea and the the fun is you know it's 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 rich people complicated and borderline frustrating but also deeply flawed rich people in New York City and the other people that have to deal with them you know and um, so it's it's a fun world as well kind of soapy kind of uh... <clears throat> yeah we kind of like you know we sort of say it's a big sprawling soap with that kind of night manager uh, tone which talk about good TV wow. The Night Manager. I was hugely into that. It was so good. Fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> what other shows are you watching? What do you like that's on right now? Well, I just I've been I've been trying to sort of dial in because when when the new season starts, I kind of want to sample as much as I can. And of course, I've been in Atlanta without a, a DVR, um, so it's been more difficult. But I've I've definitely like touched in with Atlanta um, because obviously I work in Atlanta and I wanted to see you know how other people represent it. And then Donald Glover, I think, is so interesting. And that show is good. Yeah. That show is smart. It's just smart. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I'm behind on that now, so I've got to catch up. Um, and I uh, I want to check out Westworld because um, I love what HBO does, and Game of Thrones is one of my favorite shows. So uh, I'm excited to kind of see what their next big thing is. Um, 
I still uh, am, am loyal to Scandal, Do or Die. Uh, I've loved that show from day one. I've said that I love those stories, you know, that the show that sort of gets buried at the end of the mid-season, and they're like, oh, we're just going to air it. It's like eight episodes, whatever, who cares, blah, blah, blah. And then, you know, the audience finds it. And that had nothing to do with marketing and everything to do with good television. And I look at that, you know, when that started as such a great success story. Uh, and of course, then it became, you know, the whole lineup became a juggernaut. So that was a thrill to watch. Um, what else? I am, huh, I've already talked so much about the two shows I watched last <laughs> night. I feel like I might as well be in the marketing department for those other networks. Um, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Nicely done. I think it's a good list. Yeah. And then, you know, of course, Stranger Things was the, the thrill mm -hmm. of, of the summer. And Sensate, weirdly, was a big thrill for me in the last six months because uh, it was something I totally did not expect to like at all and came away really moved by and thought it was such a, an emotional and powerful series. And, and I think everybody should, you know, give it a, give it a watch. So as you uh, work with the young writers, as, as you sort of nurture the, the, the next generation, and uh, you think back at some of the advice you got early on in your career, uh, is there anything in particular that you hold on to that early on someone told you or, or sort of uh, lesson learned along the way that sort of still inspires what you do? A lot. Um, I think it's it's funny because what I say to the writers that work with me is every showrunner has their own way of doing things. I certainly am very set in my ways. I hate exclamation points. I hate them. And my, the writers on my team laugh at me, but they tell each other secretly when a new writer gets hired. They tell them, just so you know, Julie hates exclamation points. I hate them. I think that they, they tonally shift a sentence. If a line of dialogue that ends with an exclamation point makes it sound really breathless and, hey, Jimmy, you know, and, and, and not grounded at all. Whereas I think if you go look at like, like a JJ script, who of course is extremely talented, gifted, and very successful, I think there's exclamation points all over the way he writes. And so writers come up studying the writers that they love and adopt different things about the writers that they love and as much as the way they write. David Kelly, I used to study his scripts, he underlined every third word for emphasis. He left no no choice for that you were gonna ever miss a line reading as an actor because and or in reading. You were never gonna not understand exactly how he wanted it to sound because of the way that he literally used an underline. Um, so what I say to them is every showrunner has a different way of doing things and a different way of writing. And the job of a TV writer in the early years is to emulate and to mimic um, and you will achieve so much success just by literally writing like using nouns and action lines and punctuation the same way that your showrunner does because then when they read the script it's very narcissistic but it's true it's going to look and sound like what they would have written and so you're setting yourself up for positive response uh, and then it becomes about infusing the show with your voice and your point of view and growing your own point of view and, and understanding that, yes, I might be writing the point of view of this show right now, but where is my voice going to take me? And never losing sight of your own voice. Because really, being a television storyteller and a television writer is also a training ground for being a showrunner. Um, I say to all of them, eventually you're either going to take my job over on this show or you're going to have your own show. So I want to make sure you're ready for that. So it's it's just about understanding that it's not just about oh did you know did my idea get through in the room or did my words end up on the page it's about understanding the 
how to present yourself for success in a in a writer's room environment and then how to suck in every single step of the process from you know the prep the producing the editing everything because ultimately you'll cap out as a tv writer halfway through your career if you don't embrace the producing side of it and if you don't find your skill set there that's a great answer all right, one last question for you. If you could work in any writer's room in history, what writer's room would you have wanted to be in? Oh, my God. Oh, God. Oh, God. You know, honestly, first thing that comes to my mind, and I'm sure there's a dozen, it would be Lost. Um, I know Damon from back in the day, and he is an incredibly smart, thoughtful, creative soul. And, I mean, he probably would like to go back in and sit in on the Lost Writers Room knowing everything he knows now, because yeah. he was he was a baby too. We were babies together, you know? So he had to go in and sort of like take on this machine and make it what it was. Um, I would like to go be a fly in the wall in that Writers Room, or better yet, a participant, so I could be a part of trying to world build something like that because that was incredible world build that show and yeah it was on the cusp of the difference between the x-files the so what i call the sort of chris carter universe where before dvds really and before you know where you could do things like end an episode on like digging up a skeleton and then never tell you ever who they were digging up, you know, now with, with DVR and DVDs and, you know, streaming and all that, you can't do those things. You have to know exactly where you're going. Although I know plenty of shows that do it that way anyway, still, but I believe you can't do those things. Um, and I think it would have been fun to sort of time jump back into the lost writer's room and see how it played out. Um, knowing that, that the world was going to be watching. So, so specifically and like wanting those answers and really needing to deliver on stuff um, and just be part of that phenomenon. I think it would be so cool. Yeah, I still miss that show. That's Me a, too. That was a, I it's mean, great. honest to God, I remember, I mean, the pilot obviously magnificent, but I think was it the second episode where Locke, where you learn Locke's in the wheelchair. Mm-hmm. And I'm watching this show and, you know, that was back when everybody said flashbacks were, you know, cheap writing and nobody thought flashbacks were good and refused to let you do flashbacks on shows. And I'm watching this. I'm like, ooh, flashbacks. How bold, you know, (laughs) how wild of them. And then it gets to the end and I thought, God damn it. Like, that is the greatest payoff, character payoff, mystery payoff, like, oh my God, audience, look at us. Look what we're going to do. We are going to take you on this ride. And I emailed Damon and I said, you are a fucking genius. That is extraordinary what you just did. And I'm so into this show and I'm so excited for you. And he wrote back, he's like, thanks, I'm dying. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, just what he and then ultimately he and Carlton and that whole team were able to execute um, just on a scope level and a production level, storytelling level, casting level, all of it. That show is absolutely sensational and um and i always say like steven spielberg i sort of you know i I also i i often wonder with steven spielberg is he's sad that he never got to see et for the first time as a fan you know is jj sad that he never got to like find lost like a viewer Mm -hmm. you know uh and and stuff like that like where you are part of something that's such a such a behemoth but you never actually got to experience it for the first time as a as a kid and as a fan right right or look forward so i'm grateful yeah i'm grateful that i got to experience lost just as a viewer and uh and got to go on that ride however now i would love to be in that room back then (laughs) it's a great way of putting it well thank you so much this is fantastic thank you guys it's always nice talking about what we do and why we do it 
great. Thanks for coming in. Nice to see you. Thanks. Thanks. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. We'll be back next week with another great guest. This has been Remote Controlled, only on Variety. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.